The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. My wife and I were married in Greenville, South Carolina on the longest day. And when I say longest day, I don't mean that our wedding day was lengthy and laborious. I mean, it was literally the longest day of the year in terms of when the sun rises and the sun sets. So June 21st has more sunlight than any other day of the year. So in Greenville, South Carolina, on June 21st, we were married years ago. And on that day, I remember the sun was still setting in the sky, even though we had a late wedding and a late reception. So after the wedding ceremony, we had our car, which had been carefully decorated and detailed. And together we got into that car and we literally drove off into the sunset. It was pretty cool. (laughs) But imagine if instead of one car, imagine, and this is not what happened, but imagine hypothetically instead of one car, there were two. And after the ceremony, I said, hey, honey, up top. And I gave her a high five and said, now have a good life. (laughs) And we got in separate cars and went separate ways. That wouldn't really be a relationship, would it? Now in Philippians 3, we've already read that Paul realized he did not have righteousness in his own, but needed righteousness that wouldn't come through his own pedigree or performance, but would come through faith, the righteousness that Jesus has accomplished. Now sadly, some Americans think That to have something from God to be saved or to be forgiven is just a mercenary transaction where you get your afterlife ticket to go, and then that's the end of it. But just like a marriage isn't a relationship if it ends at the wedding altar, so our relationship with God has to go beyond hello. (laughs) There has to be a lingering relationship where we get to know one another. Remember that man-made religion is transactional. You put something in, you get something out, you've earned some sort of eternal security. But actual true Christianity is relational. It is where humans know the divine creator, but know him through the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. Let me remind you where we've been in Philippians 3. Today we're going to pick up in verse 12 and go to 21. Here's where we've been. In Philippians 3, verse 1, Paul says, It's not a problem for me to remind you of these things. He's reminding them of the gospel. In verse 2, he introduces people who think that you can be right with God based on your performance. He introduces Judaizers. They think because of their actions, their circumcision, their deeds, their religions, their traditions, that they can be right with God. Last week, I compared them to what I call in America, what others have referred to in America, as moralistic, therapeutic deism. The idea that God wants us to be good, and surely we're all pretty good, and he'll come and help when we need him. But in the end, good people make it to heaven, and surely we're good people. A false religion. The Bible tells us there's none good but God. The Bible tells us that there are people who know about God, but don't actually know God in Jesus Christ in a relationship. Jesus said in John 17, verse 3, this is eternal life, to know God and to know Him whom He has sent. 
to know Jesus. All right, Paul said, if it was possible to be right with God based on being good enough, then I would have done it. And in verses four, five, and six, he gave his stats, like I said, similar to the back of a baseball card. He had a great pedigree. He was from the right kind of home. He had done incredible works. He had great performance. But those weren't enough. So remember by verse 7, he says, The things that I thought were gained to me, I now count as loss, so that I may gain Christ. Verse 8 and 9, he goes on to talk about the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. But now verse 10 and 11, he says he wants to share in his resurrection, share in his sufferings, be conformed even to a death like his. So if verse 9 says that we're not righteous because of something we do, but because of what Christ did, and we have to receive it through faith. All right, so if the moment I believe I'm saved because I'm made righteous through faith and that secures my eternity, what do I do now? What happens in the in-between? And that's what our text today is about, verses 12 through 21. And the title of today's sermon is Pressing On. Because the text is about how a relationship with Jesus goes past the wedding altar, so to speak. Goes past um, that first moment, but actually grows in a relationship that culminates in eternity with him in person. So look now, please, in God's word, Philippians 3, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on. This is the key verb of this passage, and it will be repeated twice. I press on. I move forward to make it my own. What is it that he wants to make his own? It's what he's been referring to in the previous verses. Knowing Jesus Christ, growing in the perfection that he's secured for me, pressing on in my relationship and pursuit of him. That's why number one on today's handout is pursue Jesus who first pursued you to make you his own. We all know there's a huge difference between skin-deep religiosity and real Christianity. And today I want to show you characteristics of a real relationship with Jesus Christ. And the first one, a real relationship with Jesus continues to pursue Jesus. Knowing him, pleasing him. Because a real relationship knows that in this life, we have not and never will arrive. Look in verse 12 again. Not that I have already obtained this. I'm not already perfected. I'm not everything that Jesus has secured for me. I one day will be, but I'm not and never will be in this life. And so now I press on to be more like Jesus and to be closer to Jesus. One of my favorite passages that similarly makes this point is 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12, which says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully as I am fully known. On the basis of a relationship with God through Christ, one presses on to know Christ better. It's a pursuit of a person. And by pursuing that person, we grow in the perfection that he has secured for us. We grow in Christ-likeness. In fact, the Bible says this repeatedly. One of my other favorite passages is 2 Corinthians 3, 
which says when God removes the veil from our eyes, we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But that changes us because it says we change from one degree of glory to the next. See, the Bible tells us that true Christianity is relational and transformational. It's relational and transformational. Religion, man-made religion, is just transactional. I do this, I get this. But true Christianity is relational and transformational. Progressively, God changes us as we press on. Now, pressing on is the heart of the passage. It means moving forward. Yesterday, my wife and I and our four children wanted to go to a park and on the way, we thought we'd stop and buy one of those backpacks to carry your, your, your children with, with, with you. And we went to a couple places and they didn't have it, so we figured, well, we're going to go anyway. And we went to William B. Umstead Park. Some of you probably know where the story is going because you've been in that park. I never have. I got there and I found out nothing is paved. <laughs> but I have my wife and four kids and they now want to go for a walk. And I don't have a way to carry them on my back but I don't want to drive home. <laughs> so here we are, we've made the trip, we're all here, we get out of the car and we notice it's like ground and roots and turns and rocks, but what else are you gonna do? So I picked up the kids and Steph took turns and between the two of them, having this sermon in the back of my mind, many times I told my kids, now get up and press on. <laughs> we have to keep moving. We made it down to the lake and we have to come back. And in mind, I kept thinking of this passage. They kept wanting to sit and stop and daddy, can I just take a nap here? No, <laughs> no, we have to press on. Now here's what Paul is talking about. It's something that a true Christian has. A holy discontentment with staying still. A holy discontentment with stagnation. Boy, if God has grabbed me and secured me for eternally, I can't stop on the path I want, I desire to press on. To continue to know more closely and be more like the person who made me his own. Notice the fuel to press forward is the confidence that I belong to Christ already. Look in verse 12. I press on because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So because I belong to him relationally, then I want to be like him transformationally. Think of how different, different this is from empty, hollow, man-made religion, which tells you do this and don't do that. Because then maybe, if you're really good, you'll get something at the end. See, Christianity is the exact opposite. I don't obey to earn something. Christ has earned something for me, therefore I get to obey. <laughs> because Christ has made a relationship with me that secured my salvation, I get to grow in knowing him and being more like him. The difference between duty and delight here is tremendous. C.S. Lewis wrote this, a perfect man would never act from a sense of duty. He'd always want the right thing more than the wrong one. And then Lewis has this very insightful sentence. Duty is only a substitute for love. It's like a crutch is a substitute for a leg. Most of us need the crutch at times, admittedly, but it's idiotic to use the crutch when our legs can do the journey on their own. The same is true for Paul. Paul is a man without a crutch. 
Here's a man who loves to press on because he knows that Christ has made him his own. The fuel for us to grow and to press on is what Christ has done for us. He's pursued us, therefore we in turn pursue him, all in the context of relationship. And it is actually similar to a marital relationship. You say, I do, you've made a covenant to each other, and you're married. But the pursuit of knowing each other, knowing how to best love each other, is just at the very beginning. I have two books that were given to me by a friend. The blue one is Husband in Pursuit, and the red one is Wife in Pursuit. These are 31-day devotionals that you take together with your spouse. And in it, you talk about how to better pursue one another. But the same principle is the one we're reading here in this text. In the basis of relationship, Paul pursues Christ. My favorite illustration of that uh, was recently supplied by my Sunday school teacher here at our church. He emailed all of us in the class and gave us a story from the Wall Street Journal. Perhaps you read it. If you're in the class, I'm sure you did. It's about Dr. Jack Eccles, who is 93 years old and was a Baptist pastor for a very, very long time, mainly in California and Washington on the West Coast. But about five or six years ago, he and his wife, Jerry, short for Geraldine, moved over here to North Carolina. And his wife became very sick. And last year, she moved into the Hillcrest Convalescent Center in, in, in Durham. And then, of course, COVID happened, and you're not allowed to, to visit one another. He's 93, she's 91, but he was unwilling to let his wife go. And so he checked into Hillcrest, and he was given a room where he pays a special rate, but he's not allowed to leave, and he lives in a room without any windows. Since that time, he's seen none of his family members in person, but he won't leave his wife Here's what he said in quote that I really liked. When asked, why don't you leave? Aren't you endangering yourself? What if you get COVID? He said, I could kick the bucket at any time, but I just want to be with her. So a man whose wife loved him for over 70 years, now he's with her in what are perhaps her last days. You see, the pursuit never ends. This is what Paul's same heart is in this passage. Did you notice it in verse 8? I want to gain Christ. Verse 9, I want to be found in Christ. Verse 10, I want to know Christ. Verse 10, I will share in his sufferings like a man shares with his wife's sufferings in a nursing home. In verse 12, am I content with where I am? No, I want to press on. You see, true Christianity is a relationship. It's not a mercenary transaction. It's a deep and ongoing personal relationship where you get to know God personally and so you want to know Him and be like Him better and better. Now, number two, a real relationship, true Christianity, not that fake religion stuff, but true Christianity pursues Jesus with a focus that joyfully sets aside distractions. Look at verse 13 and 14. First we'll read them together, then we'll take them one at a time. Together. Verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on. There's that verb again. Toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You see, Paul's whole Christian life is the pursuit of one thing, the pursuit of Christ. 
1954, in Vancouver, British Columbia, we had what's known as the Miracle Mile. The first time two runners in the same race both ran a mile in under four minutes. The two runners were John Landy and Roger Bannister. Perhaps you've seen the picture of the story that I'm about to tell. Here are the two fastest men alive running this race in this time in 1954. And when they come down the home stretch, John Landy is slightly ahead. And he can't figure out how ahead he is. And so he turns to the side to look for Roger Bannister. And in doing so, just enough to pull his leg back, Roger passes him on the other side. It's a reminder of how taking your eyes off the goal for just a moment can actually tremendously set you back. That's the simple point of Paul's metaphor. It's easy to to press metaphors beyond what we should, but this is a very simple word image. If I want to know and love Christ, then I have to keep my focus on Him and forget anything else that would cause me to lose that focus, to strain forward so that I can joyfully see him face to face when I finish the race. Now let's focus on the words more carefully. Verse 13. I do not consider that I have made it. Again, you only press forward if you're humble enough to realize you haven't arrived. See, the race is never over, even though Christ has secured it. So in this life, keep running and run well. Which is why the verse continues. Forget what lies behind. Strain forward to what's ahead. Is Paul saying we should never remember the past? Is he saying we should never remember anything that's happened in our life previously? I think the answer, obviously, from the rest of the Bible is no. That would be pressing the metaphor too far. But he is telling us something important. You know how when you're driving, you have in front of you the windshield and your car has a rear view mirror on it. I once left my car out in the heat and it got so hot that the glue where the rear view mirror was melted and the rear view mirror fell off. And let me tell you, when you're driving and you have to hand hold your rear view mirror, <laughs> it is a lot less effective than it normally should be. But it does remind you of something. It reminds you that to drive, you still primarily look forward. And when you use that rearview mirror, it's just for the occasion of quickly checking something behind you. That, I think, catches the sense of what Paul is telling us. Can we learn from our past in our life? Yes, absolutely. Can and should we praise God for the past in our life? Yes, absolutely. But should we dwell on it to the extent that we fail to press on? Oh, no, God forbid. We strain forward no matter where we are in life, no matter how far along we think we are or aren't. Learning that whatever grace God has given us, He has grace for what's ahead. Let's press on. That means avoiding distraction, striving for the goal, and keeping the prize in mind. Now let's look at verse 14 more closely. I press on toward the goal for the prize. What's the prize? My wife and I, before we had kids and we had, <laughs> we had free time, we signed up for a 5K. And at this 5K, and I hadn't been running for a while since college, uh, I didn't really want to run. She really wanted to run. She talked me into it. We, we went to it. And we went there with some friends. And the 5K started, and then suddenly I took off. Afterwards, we got to the end. My friend finally <laughs> joined me out of breath. 
And he said, boy, you were running so fast today. What were you thinking about when you were running? And I said, the whole time I was running, I was thinking about Little Debbie's strawberry shortcake rolls. (laughs) And that if I could just finish, I could start eating those again. (laughs) So that prize propelled me towards a stronger vigor than I ever would have had. Brothers and sisters, don't miss the text. What prize could possibly fuel you to press on no matter all the temptations to just stay stagnant? Look in verse 14. We press on for the upward call. God has called us heavenward. That's a call from God. And notice it's in Christ Jesus, meaning he's the power for it, but he's also the prize. We run the race so that in the end we can enjoy him face to face. Is there a better prize than Jesus? He tells us that we will be with him forever. Remember 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Now I see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, the songwriter writes, I will behold him. Have you ever heard the song, it will be worth it all? It will be worth it all when? When we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when? When we see Christ. See, the prize is to be with our Savior face to face who finished the race for us. He's the author and finisher of it, but now propels us to run it with Him. You know, the sad thing is that prize probably doesn't seem as appealing to us as it should. Do you know why that is, I think, in part? Because very often, especially as Americans who are affluent, we confuse earth with heaven. We've tried to make this what actually our heart is longing for that is well beyond this. Gordon Fee writes, the truth of this passage often gets lost in the contemporary Western church in an affluent age. Who needs it? But Paul's voice needs to be heard anew. Part of being human is that by nature we are oriented to the future. In a day when most people have no real future to look forward to, here's a strikingly powerful Christian moment. And yet the tragedy that attends this thoroughgoing loss of hope is that we're trying to make the present eternal. But in the midst of banal hopelessness in our culture, the believer in Christ needs to recognize Christ as the beginning and end of all things meaningful. See, brothers and sisters, if our eyes are on Christ, then they're on the prize. And if our eyes are on the true prize, then the songwriter, I'll quote another hymn, turn your eyes upon Jesus. And when our eyes are full of his glory, what does he say happens? The things of this world grow strangely dim. This passage tells us what the real prize is. But now number three. All right, so these are characteristics of true Christianity. First, true Christianity pursues Christ to know Him. Second, it pursues Christ with a focus. But now third, true Christianity pursues Jesus with a heavenly longing to know Him face to face. So look now in verse 15 and 16. Let those of us who are mature, the ESV says, I have to pause here and do some grammatical background, which is something I normally don't like to do too much, but I have to. Our English translations do not know what to do with verse 15 and 16. Depending on the translation you have, you might read the word mature, or you might read the word perfect. 
because no one knows what to do with it. Well, I shouldn't say no one knows. There are two groups that each think they're right. So the word teleos uh, is the Greek word for complete or mature or perfect. It's the, it's the same word in verse 12. Look in verse 12. Not that I've already obtained or I'm already perfect. That word teleos, it's the same one here in verse 15. Now, half of the translators think it means mature. If it means mature, then what Paul is saying is this. If you're mature as a Christian, then you're mature enough to know that you have a long way to go. You're not perfected. You haven't arrived. In fact, the more mature you are, the more aware of how far you need to go you are. That's possible. Some translations take it that way. Some commentators think it that way. But I think it'd be very unusual for Paul to use the same word differently four verses later. And that's why the other half of the translations, including the CSB Study Bible and the Net and several commentators, think he is using the word perfect, but here, ironically. So verse 15, read it that way now. So those of you who think you're perfect, God will reveal your error to you, verse 15. So he's probably now taking a jab at those people he jabbed at verse 2 who think they can be right with God based on their pedigree and performance. Now, whether it's mature or perfect, the general meaning stays the same. The idea is that the reality is that only Christ is our perfection and we must press on and not be content with where we are. So now look in verse 16, which moves the point home. So let us... Hold true to what we have attained. Hold true is stoiko. It means to live up to. Let us live up to the truth that we need Christ and we must press on in Christ. And let us continue to grow beyond where we are. Let me first call your attention to the phrase, let us. Did you notice he's speaking to a group? Let us collectively. You see, uh, in this time of COVID and chaos and crisis, when everybody wants to shut down, it's a good reminder for us to listen to Paul say, now let us hold true and press on. So Emmanuel Baptist Church, let us press on. Let us press on with each other to continue the race that Christ has authored and will finish for us. To continue to encourage one another as the day approaches and so much the more. Think of how seeing other people change helps you change and grow. My wife's siblings and I, uh, several months ago, started a group chat with one another to encourage each other to run. And my brother-in-law will make a little 30-second video. Hey, here's what I'm doing today. And when I see it, I think, oh, I hate that guy. But now it makes me want to do it too. (laughs) I should do that too. And that's kind of the point here, that we press on together. Now, in order to press on together, we need to learn from good examples and avoid bad bad ones. So look in verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. In what way is Paul worthy of imitation? Well, based on the preceding verses, he realizes he hasn't arrived And yet he wants to press on. So how do I find someone worthy of imitation? Someone who's humble enough to know they have a long way to go, but hungry enough that they want to grow in that grace. People who are humbled by grace, I haven't arrived, but people are hungry for more grace, but I want to grow. That's someone worthy of imitation. 
What's the opposite look like? Verses 18 and 19. For many, whom I've often told you and now tell you with tears. Let me pause there for a second. Have you ever been moved over the lostness of God's enemies? Very often when Paul talks about people who oppose Christ, he doesn't do so with rancor, but with sadness. With tears, I tell you, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, but now notice we learn what they live for. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Commentators sometimes wrestle with what exactly do all these phrases mean, but the point is simple enough. Here are people that have made earth everything. People who have made the temporal what they live for and worship. Right now we live in an American age where you can find Christian or quasi-Christian examples everywhere. You can find some funny blog written by someone who claims to be Christian. You can find some Instagram feed where this quote-unquote Christian has all this cute and cozy life things that they want to point you to. You can find a quasi-Christian television show that always makes you feel warm and comfortable. Have you noticed, though, that the best examples for you to learn from in life are not the ones that are relatable and comfortable, but the ones that seem radical and challenging. This week I was watching the news and they interviewed Pastor John MacArthur. In California, he's been sued repeatedly for daring to gather as a church. They asked him why he was doing so. And here's a man who's been a pastor at that church for over 50 years, a man now in his eighth decade. And he said, well, my hero is Jesus Christ, but my second hero in the Bible is the Apostle Paul. And he said when Paul would go to a city to preach the gospel, he didn't look for a hotel room. He looked for a jail because he knew he'd probably eventually end up there. (laughs) And John MacArthur said, at my age, if I have to go to jail and start a jail ministry, sounds fine to me. I've never had a jail ministry before. (laughs) And I thought, now that sounds radical and it sounds challenging. And that's what makes it a worthwhile example. There's a lot of people that are relevant that have a blog about how they just can't even because life is so hard and they feel relatable and that makes you feel comfortable and that's why they're probably not worth your time. But here are examples of people in verse 17 who live for something greater. They're not like the people in verse 18 and 19 who live primarily for the present. This is why verse 20, Paul reminds us where we actually belong. Look in verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject all things to Himself. Yes, it's true, Christian. It's okay to look after your home and your possessions. The Bible tells us to care for our home and our possessions. Yes, Christian, it's okay for you to look after your body and to commit to exercise and diet. Those are things the Bible tells us to do too. But these must not ever be objects of our highest affection. The H and the G in HGTV for a Christian means home with God. (laughs) That's, That's where we're going. And when it comes to our body, sure, we care for it, but we know what the eternal body is. The eternal body is the one that Christ glorifies. 
So we don't make this earth heaven because what a disappointment that would be. We live for where the race leads, not where the race runs through. But don't ever miss what Jesus did so these glorious truths could be true. Verse 12, Paul said, I want to grow because I'm not perfect. But do you know who is perfect? The one person who is perfect left perfection and took on our imperfection so that he could make us perfect. Verse 12 said, he made me his own. And what was the cost for him to do that? It was his life, his blood. Verse 20 tells us that we'll go to a heavenly city, not made with hands. But in order for that heavenly city to be made, the person who was from heaven left heaven and was crucified outside of the earthly city, Jerusalem, so that he could bring us to his heavenly one. You know those bodies, those glorified bodies we're all looking forward to? One day when ours are glorified, Christian, we'll look at his who still has holes in his hands and a hole in his side. How striking that when he glorifies us, he will retain the scars that purchase that. See, if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ relationally, maybe you've only known religion transactionally. Listen to 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for our sins. The just for the unjust. Why? So that he could buy an afterlife ticket? No, so that he could bring us to God. See, what God has done for you is a relationship for you to receive, maybe today for the first time, to come to God and say, Lord, I'm done living for me. I want Christ. I want to know Him. I want to be with Him. I want Him to be the pursuit of my life, the author and finisher of my faith. But Christian, are we pressing on? Have you noticed a common thing Christians do when we sin? We retreat. We retreat from church. We retreat from our spouse. We retreat from the Bible. We retreat from prayer. We feel ashamed when we actually need to press on. Do you feel like you've arrived? Are you very comfortable with your progress? Are you enjoying stagnation? Or are you ready for the discomfort of transformation? Pressing on. So Christian, move past the past and press on in the present to the person, Jesus Christ, who's pursued you. And may he be our focus because he is our prize. Let's pray together this morning. Dear God, it is staggering that Jesus would be the author and finisher of our faith. We are so used to a world in which we achieve things based on our effort But Lord, no one achieves heaven. Heaven came down so that Jesus could achieve for us what our sins demanded and deserved. Wrath and punishment. But he bore it in his body so that we don't have to bear it for eternity. And he rose victoriously over it. And now he calls people to receive him and know him. And he will get us to the end of the race. He will take us to heaven. In fact, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes unto the Father but by me. So Lord, help us to remember there's one way, there's one door, there's one road, and Jesus is that way, road, and door. So perhaps someone today needs to, for the first time, call out to God, God, save me. I want to know him. 
But Lord, as Christians, we know. We know. I know as a Christian. Sometimes I just don't want to press on anymore. I just want to sit. I just want to stay comfortable. And I want to look at people online who make me feel more comfortable. I want to read blogs about people who make me feel happy with the stagnation I have. But we actually need to be pressed and challenged and to never be content. We need a holy discontentment to press on to know Him. Lord, may we long to know our Lord and Savior and press on for His glory and obey Him and please Him and live for Him so that when the race is over, He will look us in the face and say, well done, you good and faithful servant. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's E-B-C-R-A-L-E-I-G-H dot com.